Let's pray, and then we'll look into God's Word this morning. God, uh, I'm not even sure which song it was earlier, but we sang a song earlier where we talked about expecting things from you, or expectations, not expecting like Santa Claus gifts, but our expectations, and we were expecting you to move when um, heaven fall down, heaven, when, when, when your world, when the Spirit and your power came down, comes down to earth, and we were singing that heaven fall down, and we were singing that the reality of up there become our reality down here, which, mean your, which means your spirit would have his way, uh, which means obstacles in our hearts are removed, which means uh, love, joy, patience, and kindness become the way in which we naturally begin to relate to one another. When heaven comes down, then, then we become the kind of abnormally joyful, courageous, and loving people that we've all longed to be, and again, you've removed the obstacles that keep that from happening, and you give us the power for it to happen. So we do pray, even as we look in your word this morning, it's a thing, some of us have been to church hundreds, thousands of times in our life, but every Sunday, would you give us a fresh, ex- fresh expectation of what your spirit can do in us, through us, uh, when we listen to you and respond to you. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Probably one of the famous, most famous against all odds story, against the odds story, is the David and Goliath story. So even if, if you did not grow up in church, most Americans still know this story. They may not know all the details of the story, um, but it's kind of one of those things that's part of the American cultural understanding, you know, and we use it in sports contexts where the, you know, David is beating Goliath or whatever. But if you grew up in church, you heard this story a lot too, and if you're like, if you were like me, and I'm saying like me in terms of my, my age, which is few of you, we used to have, and I, can't, I can never find one of these things, they used to have flannel graph. And so they had these, you know, it was like flannel graph was like this felt stuff that would stick, and they'd have a David, a David thing that would stick on this felt thing, and a Goliath figure would stick on this felt thing, and then the next one would be Goliath falling down dead, and that's how we learned the story. Now, what's interesting is, really, as kids, they never finished the story and told us that David cut off Goliath's head, but that's just, maybe that's not important, I don't know. But it's interesting when you think about, I was telling that story to my son once about a year ago, and I was trying to think, should I finish the story? I'll just say David just killed Goliath. Um, But it's one of those stories we love, because it's the small David beats big Goliath. And that tends to be the, the, the story that we round out David's life with, or at least frames his life. Um, But what's interesting, what we see about David's life, what happens in the days, months, and years, and decades after this, um, he perhaps faced some greater giants and greater challenges. And and, And there's more to David, way more to David, than just this really cool underdog victory where he gets his name in the headline. So what we've been doing the last couple of weeks, go to the next slide, is in a series called Against the Odds. What do you do with your backs against the wall? And like in the picture here, it's a pawn against all the other chess pieces, and I don't know chess that well, but I know enough to know I don't want to be the black pawn in that situation. But what do you do when things aren't going, not just, not just that things aren't going how you want them to, but you feel pinned against the wall? Um, pinned against the wall, you don't see a way out, what do you do? So let's just, I'm going to go through the life of David, go to the next slide here. Um, I don't, whatever you know of the Old Testament, if I'm offending you by your knowledge, that's okay, I'm going to rehearse some things. 
So Saul was the first king of Israel. Once they got to the promised land, kind of went through the desert from Egypt, got to the promised land. There were some judges that ruled the land, but then Saul was the first king. Um, Saul made quite a few, uh, not just mistakes, he disobeyed God on some significant things, and God finally said, okay, I'm done with Saul, I'm going to find a new king, and David is the one who's identified through, I mean, he was the youngest and the smallest of all his brothers, but God said, no, he's the one, he's the one I'm going to be king, and he was anointed as king as, as even like a teenager, um, and this preceded the David and Goliath story, but he wasn't like crown king, it was almost like nobody really, I mean, it was like done, but he wasn't king yet. Saul was still king. David becomes Saul's, uh, he's friends of Saul's son. David also becomes the musician that calms Saul down. David played the harp. And, and David was also a great warrior. And David starts killing um, people at a greater rate than Saul kills people in, in battle. And so people start singing David's praises. In the Bible it says one of the songs people sang where David kills his ten thousands and Saul kills his thousands. You know, so Saul's kind of getting envious, and not kind of, he is getting envious. So David's life is really going well at this point. He serves in the king's court, he plays the harp, he's a master warrior, he's a great leader. But then Saul begins to turn against him. And the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament outlines the ways in which Saul was intent on now killing David. And it starts off with, he gets, you know, he's jealous, he's envious. One time David's playing the harp. I don't know what the throne room would have looked like. And Saul gets so overwhelmed with envy and anger, he throws a spear and tries to kill David. I mean, not just, doesn't just slap him on the face, he tries to kill him. Uh, and actually, it said the scripture that happened twice in the same kind of setting. I don't know why David stayed there after one spear, but he did. So it happened twice. Uh, David even becomes good friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. David even marries one of Saul's daughters. But Saul is still in ten. He actually sends soldiers to David, and his daughter's name was Michael. David and Michael's apartment to find David to kill him. I mean, he's this intent on killing now his son-in-law. And David, you know, through some trickery and kind of literally putting like a fake head and hair in the bed thinking it was David, he took off out the window. David kind of escapes by the skin of his teeth. And, and then the next number of chapters in 1 Samuel is a, accounting over and over of David being back against the wall, in hiding, uh, against the odds, escapes by the skin of his teeth. And if you read some of those chapters, many of them start off with, and then David fled to this town, then he fled to this town, then he fled to this town. And Saul's always on his tail, and always close to killing him, always sending people to kill him, always trying to kill him. So the glory of Goliath is way gone for David. Those trophies aren't there anymore. Now he's on the run trying to figure out, well, I, I thought I was anointed king and tell God, what's, what's going on? And this went on for years, not just days, not just weeks, not just months, where David is getting to the point, you can imagine he's getting to the point where he's like, what's going on here? Because he's consistently against the wall, consistently fighting against the odds. I mean, Saul has his own army, and he's trying to kill David. I mean, he's not just trying to um, defriend him on Facebook. He's trying to kill him, all right? He hates, he hates David. He's trying to kill him. So this story goes on and on, and if, um, eventually 
Saul dies in battle. And I didn't mention this, but numerous, there were at least two times where David had a chance to kill Saul, but he chose not to because he knew that's not what God had wanted to do. So it was interesting. Even though that Saul was coming after David and uh, for no fault other than he was just jealous of David. David hadn't done anything to stir up Saul's anger to him other than his jealousy. So Saul eventually dies, and then later in one of the books of Sam, the next book of Samuel, in 2 Samuel, and I'm going to read part of this, David kind of recounts that part of his life. And um, it's in 2 Samuel. I'll take my glasses off. These are not reading glasses, so if I try to read with them, I can't see. So, but if I wear my reading glasses, I can't see you, so I've got to figure out which to do. And you might say get bifocals, and I said I try, tried and didn't, didn't work. So, so um, David actually writes a poem, one of his psalms. It shows up in 2 Samuel. It also shows up in Psalm 18. We read part of Psalm 18 to start the service. Remember he talked about the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my safety. Um, he helps me defeat my enemies. This was David's psalm, the, the song that he wrote, the worship song that he wrote, when he reflected on all the ways in which God protected him when his back was against the wall. And he starts off the psalm this way. Just leave this up there for now, and I'll, I'll start the psalm off, and then I'll put part of the psalm up on the screen. He says, so again, again, this is David kind of recounting all the times where he escaped death at the hands of Saul, and other enemies too, but Saul was the primary one. I love you, Lord, you are my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. We read this start of the service. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. I called on the Lord, kind of the same, same kind of sense of the New Testament word when they say I cried out to the Lord. He's saying I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. And then he writes about what it felt like when he was back against the wall. So I don't know the situation you may be kind of relating to, whether it's your back against the wall financially, relationally, some issue in your life, a future anxiety, whatever, but there's different areas. If you're not now, sooner or later, there'll be times in your life where you feel like you don't know the way out. And this is how David described those times in his life where he was hiding and running and hiding and running. So the ropes of death entangled me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me, and death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary, and my cry to him reached his ears. Go to the next slide, Paul. I want to just focus on this part of the psalm that David just prayed, that he just kind of, well, I just read that David was part... You get the clear sense from this psalm, and when you read about David's life, you get the clear sense this was true, as well other psalms that he wrote. He didn't write all the psalms. He wrote a good number of them. In my distress, I cried out to the Lord. I cried out to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. You get the sense this was part of the rhythm of David's life. In my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Now, distress, the word distress in this kind of sense here, it has the sense of, uh, I was talking about this with my wife yesterday, she came up with the best analogy, because the word distress means when you, when you feel tightened or strangled, and she said it's kind of like when you feel like you're out of breath. Not just, like, I mean, I imagine, some of us have probably had those times where you got either popped in the stomach or in a sporting event, got knocked out windless, and you're like, and you can't breathe. 
But my guess is some of you also know the kind of distress, um, depression, whatever you want to call it, discouragement, stress, whatever, where you almost feel like you can't breathe. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's physiological, but you don't know if it's emotional. What's going on? I just I, I can't seem to function. And it's a sense almost like a boa constrictor on your soul. So when David says, in my distress, in, my, in those times in my life where I felt like I, had no, I didn't know what to do and I didn't know if I'd even have another breath. And this is David. This is David, King David. This is warrior David who killed thousands and thousands of people. And I won't tell you what he had to do to, to win his wife in marriage. You need to look it up in the Bible and read that because it may not be proper to read in mixed company, if you know the story. But he was a, he was a pretty tough guy. Swung a pretty good sword, threw a pretty good spear. But he's saying, there were times in my life, many times we get the sense, where the boa boa constrictor of reality was around my soul so tight, I didn't know if I'd have another breath. And you might say, well, that seems kind of overly dramatic. But if you've been to those situations in life, or even in some of those situations in life, you would say, no, that's not overly dramatic. That's exactly how I felt. Or that's exactly how I'm feeling right now, some of you might say. Or if it's not, some of you will honestly have situations in life where I don't wish them on anybody. It's reality of how we live in a broken world where you will have those situations where distress, you know, maybe it's a small D distress. Maybe it's a capital D distress. Maybe it's distress in 10-point font. Maybe it's distress in 48-point font. But we're all, we all hit those times. And in those times when you feel like I don't know how to get the boa constrictor off my soul. You get angry at God. Try to figure out what's going on. But your largest concern is, how will I take my next breath? How will I go take the next? Because I don't know what to do next. That kind of a thing. And this is what I love about David. Because what I think, at times, what God brings distress into our lives, it may be because it's a reminder of us to, to cry out. Because typically, here's my pattern, but in my distress, I tried to figure out what to do. In my distress, I tried to work through my own best common sense. In my distress, I did what any smart person would do, and I did this. In my distress, I, I uh, you know, came up with a better idea or a better plan or a better strategy. But the kind of distress that David's talking about that all of us have to endure as part of being part of the human race who are trying to reclaim life with God is there's a certain there's certain kinds of distress that your intelligence your common sense your experience there's no book that will tell you how to get out of that and the only response in that time is give in despair keep trying and pushing to make something happen or cry out to God and you know, when we hear that phrase, cry out to God, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, saying you need to kind of be emotional enough where you go out to Lake Monroe and do a primal scream somewhere. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but if you do, maybe make sure nobody's around because they may think something's wrong with you, which, you know. But there is something about the expressiveness that David's talking about here and the acknowledgement that kind of a desperation. I think one of the words we sang earlier, I can't remember which one it was, talked about desperation, desperate for God. And I remember thinking, when I was singing it, for me, but I thought of all of us, how many, really, how many of us really do feel desperate for God? Because our life works. We got it working. We got it clicking. Things are going, yeah, we got a few things we got to work on. But 
things are clicking. But it seems like David's saying, no, the source of the strength of my life, the narrative story of my life, the frame on my whole life has been I have understood that crying out to God is what I'm made to do. It's not simply for weak people. David was a warrior. It's not simply for women who were, you know, stereotypically people say, oh, no, they, no, it's, David was a man. I mean, I love the fact that God used a lot of things that our culture pushes up against. Warrior, man, great leader, great king, good-looking man, all these things. He was everything our culture says, he's got it all together, but he's saying, no, I still needed to cry out to the Lord. I still have distressing things in my life, or I've had them, or I've endured them, that I realized I need the power of God in my life. I need the Holy Spirit in my life. And so, and I'll just leave it on here, but then he, the psalm continues. This is my cry to him reached my ears. Then he goes into a whole, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 verses of, then this is what happened. And he t- used all kinds of analogy about, you know, God coming down on the clouds and thunderbolt. But his whole, the whole kind of vision he's giving is, and then God showed up. I cried out to God and God showed up. He didn't abandon me. And then he even says at the end of the psalm, and he rescued me because he delights in me. Now think about that for a second. God's not rescuing you. He, when, when you cry out like this, our typical American response, or maybe our emotional response is kind of do, you know, can do Americans is, oh, we're crying out, and because God has pity on us, he'll get us out of the, the mud puddle we've gotten ourselves into. Even if it wasn't our fault, we got, yeah, got out of pity. No, David says, no, out of his delight in us, he rescues us. It's almost the sense that God delights when we cry out to him. He's not like, oh, finally. And he's not driven simply by pity. Oh, I feel bad for them. No, he's driven by his delight in us when we cry out to him. He's, he's not exasperated at those points. He's not overwhelmed. He's not impatient. He's not simply acting out of, you know, typical human pity. He says, no, he, he res- God responded to me because he delights in me. So here's what I want us to do today. Um, I'm going to ask the band to come on up because we're going to sing the song we sang earlier. This was something uh, I hadn't planned to do when we were singing the song. I had a clear sense we were going to do this. And uh, I want you to be, my guess is there's probably something, maybe not now, but for some of you, probably something that you would say, yeah, when I think about the things that would stress me now, it could be my... uh, money, it could be financial situation, it could be your marriage, it could be future, it could be health, all kinds of things that can cause that kind of kind of anxious boa constrictor on my soul kind of stress in which often we kind of go to our own panic reactions and not always turn it to God. But this, one of the songs we just sang, the chorus was uh, let go my soul and trust in him, which is really the spirit of what I think David says here and he says it in other psalms too, is that to some degree, a large degree, crying out to God necessitates a letting go. It's a very quiet thing to let go, but I think it's God sees it as crying out. Because you're saying, I am acknowledging I cannot control this. I know I can't. I've tried. It's not working. 
I've tried 15 different ways, and it's not working. So now I'm saying, God, I'm not going to become passive, but I'm letting go. Let, I'm letting go. I'm not putting this pressure on my soul to get me out of distress here. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to sing this song. We may sing it through a few times. And I'm not, I'm not trying to work up emotion. I'm just saying I think there's some real, for all of us, some real kind of things. And I just found these over in the side cabinet. These just post-it notes. I don't want you to write anything on it. But as we're singing this, if there's something that represents what you would say, yeah, that's, that's a cause of distress for me. It's a reality in my life. And it may, maybe it's been for years. Maybe you just can't seem to shake. I just want you to tear off one of these pieces while we're singing and just stick it up here on the table. We don't write anything on there, so it's not like anybody's going to see what you wrote and pass it on. We're not going to check for fingerprints or anything. Just tear one off. It's kind of a way of saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let go of that. Because I do believe... When I cry out to the Lord, he helps me. He answers me. Because he delights in me. Not because he's, finally they're going to, you know, not that. It's more if he delights in us. So this is an act, I'll say, of crying out to the Lord. Because you're letting go. You're letting him know, you know what? I'm, I'm done trying to control this. I'm done trying to figure it out. I'm done trying to twist things around. So we'll sing it through at least once, maybe twice. Um, if you just need to kind of listen to God, maybe there's something you feel that maybe you're not, I don't know what Matt's talking about. And again, I'm not trying to force anybody to anything, but maybe this time just listen, see if God brings something to light that he's like, you know, you need to let that go. Need, need, to, need to kind of do this, what I call psycho-spiritual self-talk, let go of my soul. David does that in the Psalms. He talks to, him, talks to himself, kind of. Let go, God, let go of my soul. Be at rest, my soul. Um, so, and if nothing comes to line, you know, don't feel, no, we're not going to, nobody's, there's nothing bad about not coming up here. There's nothing bad about coming up here. I'm just saying if that's you, and you just feel like you kind of need to make that kind of expression of doing that, just while we're singing that, um, let go of my soul and stick it up there. So, and I'm going first, so. Go ahead, let's sing. Let go my soul and trust in Him. You can sing the rest of the song if you want to. To know His name.